You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. I'm Nate Kading, and this is Real Success. This is the Corridor Media Group podcast, where we explore the life and careers of the Corridor's most influential business leaders. On today's episode, I sit down with Mark Kaufman, founder and chairman of Athletico Physical Therapy, a successful national company with local roots right here in Eastern Iowa. Mark shares with me how he started with a single rehabilitation center in Chicago back in 1991, his unique insight into how camaraderie motivates rehabilitation, and his perspective from being on the front lines of the new college athletics landscape. Mark also explores how he and his team grew the company to over 1,000 locations, the ever-changing science and business of athletic training. And Mark also shares what real success means to him. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Stay tuned. This episode of Real Success with Nate Kading is brought to you by Midwest One Bank. Midwest One Bank is the proud partner for doers and entrepreneurs in the corridor and beyond. As an SBA preferred lender, our team is ready to help you reach your business goals. It's Empowered Money Management. It's Midwest One Bank, member FDIC. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm super excited to to chat. I think you're one of the uh, you know great success stories to come out of the state of Iowa from a business entrepreneurial journey, and of course your your story's well interwoven with the University of Iowa as well, being a, a graduate. Um, so thank you so much for for taking the time. I think we found you down in Arizona, beating a little bit of the winter here, but um, thanks for taking some time off the golf course to chat. Well, I haven't made it to the golf course yet, Nate, but it's great to be with you. And uh, you're right, I'm, I, may, I did make it to Arizona yesterday from Chicago, which is my, uh, you know, I, I guess I've lived in Chicago more than I, I've been in Iowa, but I consider myself an Iowa guy, an Iowa boy, and that's uh, just, will always be there. Yeah, take, take us, let's just start from the top. Take us to uh, a little bit about your upbringing before you ended up at the University of Iowa was kind of sports science and, and that world always an interest of yours, or I, I know you played a bunch of sports growing up, but was the, the medical uh, piece of it always, always on your mind, or is that something you, you fell in love with once you got to the university? I, I love sports growing up and, you know, those were the days where kids, you know, from all ages just kind of showed up at the park and you played basketball or football or whatever. I had little talent for basketball. I loved football. I played football all the years growing up, played through high school, played, I wrestled a few years, which is obviously what you do in Iowa if you can't play basketball. <laughs> and uh, What high school and, were you at? What t- uh, Waco High School, Waco of Olds, Iowa. Olds is my hometown. The, uh, the uh, school has now moved to Wayland, mm-hmm. and they've had some uh, recent success on the, they're a one, a school playing eight man. They made the state final last year in eight man, which is, uh, you know, great for them. And I'm proud to, I still stay connected and do some things in support of what they're doing there. My folks, uh, you know, I, I grew up in old, I mean, we're talking for those that don't know all the small towns in Iowa, old is about 180, 200 people. Yeah. And the, the metropolis, so, the metropolis of olds. Yeah, easy, easy way to grow up. Uh, my dad was from Wayland, which was uh, eight miles away. My mom was from Swedesburg, which was two miles away. And my mom was a beautician. My dad was a carpenter. 
So I became, unbeknownst to me, one of those first-gen kids, the first generation to go to college, and uh, knew that I wanted to do that. I knew I, I didn't want to be a carpenter or a beautician, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> had, had uh, the only thing I had my eyes on, I was always in, in uh, always reading history, loved social sciences, thought I would, you know, if you would have, if I would have put money on it coming out of high school, I probably would have thought I would be a coach or a coach and teacher. Mm -hmm. And I, because we didn't have what I ended up becoming an athletic trainer. We didn't have athletic trainers in high school. And I just basically stumbled into finding the athletic training program at Iowa people, you know, and, uh, it's been a lifelong love affair. Were you, was there a first class at the university? I remember back in my, my undergrad days, I ended up being a history major. And it was always kind of like you, you find that one professor where you're like, holy cow, like this is fascinating that someone kind of gets you hooked. Were there, was it a class or was it something along those lines where you, you're like, oh man, this might be the track for me, Especially, which is especially interesting. I mean, athletic trainers in this day and age have, have become obviously synonymous with, with sports. All the young kids even are, have them around there junior high, even high school teams. But you, like you said, you didn't even have one. So where, where did that first introduction to that particular uh, pro- will, profession or was there something that sparked an interest along the way early on? This question, this story hasn't been told too often, but the real story is I dialed in to KRNA radio station from my, from Olds, Iowa a station <laughs> in Iowa city. That's right. KRNA. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. I think they're still around. And answered a trivia question in one, two wrestling tickets at the field house. And I go to this meet with my cousin who was a, a really good wrestler. I was, I'll call myself average. And, um, we go up to watch Iowa wrestle. I think it was Lehigh and someone got injured on the mat and this guy goes out and takes care of him. And I had a program and I'm looking in the program and kind of figuring out, well, I know it's not Dan Gable. Who is this guy? The guy ended up being Danny Foster. And, we get an assignment a few weeks later in my high school rhetoric class to write a letter of inquiry. And so I wrote a letter of inquiry to Dan Foster and just said, Hey, I'm coming to Iowa next year. I'm, you know, do you need somebody to sweep the mats? Yada, yada, yada. And, uh, he sends back this packet on the athletic training major at Iowa. And I, on the surface, I thought, wow, that'll keep me connected to sports. Let me see what this is about. And I kind of knew a little bit about it because our coach could tape ankles and do the basics of athletic training, by no means an athletic trainer. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I uh, end up, I, I, I think I was an education major, but then ended up applying to the athletic training program. At that point, it was a two-year program. I got in my junior and senior years and worked again. Back then, it was your junior year. You worked through all sports. And then my senior year, I got assigned to football, which uh, became a landmark year. It was the 85 Hawkeyes with yeah. Chuck Long and Larry Station and won the Big Ten Championship, which first time I was in an airplane was flying to Chicago to play the Northwestern Wildcats my senior year in college. <laughs> that's a good, that's the heyday right there. That's fun. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's obviously one part of your story is the the knowledge and obviously the acumen within the athletic training world, but the other half, maybe – probably a little more than half is the, is the business side of it and the entrepreneurial journey was, was, did that start to take root also as an undergrad at Iowa or is that something that, that popped up a little bit later on? 
popped up a little later on. Both uh, the head athletic trainers at I- at Iowa, a gentleman named Ed Crowley, who you know, yep. and then a, a woman that was the head athletic trainer at Arizona, which connected me to U of A. I, I did my grad work after I left Iowa in 86. I was in Tucson for two years working with the athletic teams. And Sue Hillman was a head athletic trainer. Both were physical therapists. And I thought, well, maybe if I can get into physical therapy school, I could, uh, that will help me get a, call it a better job in the, uh, college, uh, college ranks yeah. because, uh, you know, I thought that was my career path. I loved working college sports and I saw no reason to go anywhere else. So it, that led to PT school. I went to Northwestern in Chicago for physical therapy school right after I finished my two years in Tucson. And then that point I saw the connection between what we'll call outpatient physical therapy clinics and a good athletic training room, you know, the atmosphere, the mm-hmm. camaraderie environment, the healing environment, the, you know, seeing athletes get back on the field as a goal and seeing patients wanting to get back to life. And, um, you combine that with, uh, taking a step back. I met this Greek girl from Chicago, Marianne Chachis at Iowa my senior year. Uh, she fell madly in love with me and I <laughs> married her, uh, agreed to marry her a couple years later. And uh, if you know anything about Greeks, you're not going to get their daughters too far away from their parents. Right. So I knew Chicago was going to end up being my uh-huh. home. And, you know, truth be told, there's not, there weren't too many great athletic training opportunities in the college ranks in Chicago and they were already taken by long-term right. good. So, that's when I started to focus on the private sector. So it was almost by necessity then, right? Like you picked picked your hometown, which is the trick about whether you're a college athlete or professional athlete or someone that's working in that realm or coach or athletic trainers, you, you got to kind of bop around quite a bit, right? So you're, you're basically saying, hey, Chicago's it. This is where we want to be. I got to kind of find my way more, more so than yeah. kind of saying, hey, I got this business insight. It was sort of like, hey, we're here now. How do we make a a go of it in this particular town. To Marianne's credit, she would have bopped around with me, uh, as you, which was completely accurate as the, the career path for a lot of athletic trainers. And, uh, um, but the opportunity combined with, I love, I always love, I had a couple of college roommates at Iowa from Chicago, always loved Chicago. And for a small town guy to feel comfortable in a city like that, um, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, I, I, I did what you said. I called it home and, uh, thus became the genesis for Athletico. And, and that story is pretty simple. I worked for, for uh, a private group a uh, couple blocks from our apartment and um, worked there two years. Um, I did start an outreach athletic training program as part of my, I kind of did it on my own. I, want, I did it you know, because I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And the interesting, Nate, was, uh, interesting thing was that I figured out that I just didn't love working with college athlete, athletics. I loved working with all athletics. Sure. So I was working high school, high school. Yep, yep. rugby games. I was working tournaments that were in Chicago or whatever event. I just, I just loved doing it. Yeah. I think that insight is great that you said there's sort of that, that nexus or that uh, connection between that outpatient PT room, how it can feel sort of more sterile, but you notice something through your sports background of, and, I've seen that too, where you go into that athletic training room and there's the, the old lineman sitting on the table. There's the other guy there. There's that kind of that banter back and forth and everybody has that shared common goal, which is to get back on the field, to help your team win and go compete. And you're celebrating people's rehab successes like that. I can picture this time, like 
before Athletico and these other, now they're obviously much more prevalent and you were really a pioneer in that sense, but you go into these places and I've been in a patient of Athletico and been, been in there. It's like they're, they, the people, the PTs there, it's part of what you, what the insight that you saw, right? Like you ingrain that in the culture as part of the experience. It's not just about coming in and putting ice on someone's knee. It's how do you, how do you treat them? How do you goal set? What's that human to human interaction? That's a really a foundational insight that you had right out of the gate with, when you opened your first clinic in Chicago. It was what I was used to and is what was showed, showed to me by people like Streif, Crowley, Faye Thompson, Foster, you know, and, and I didn't know any other way. And uh, it is an important element, the presence you have, the environment, the healing environment I mentioned, but just a positive attitude. I, I always joke that uh, it's not a joke, but if you want to find out what's going on within the culture of a team, spend a day in the athletic training room and you'll figure right. it out pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, like, the, it's like the barbershop, right? Like that's where all the, yeah, yeah all, the, all the good banter, all the gossip takes place. Everything comes out and you can just read the attitude and the body language. And is it, you know, and you've been among team, you know, when you're winning, when you're losing and just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's an interesting uh, dynamic for sure. But uh, yeah, that's certainly part of it. Well, I mean, I love these kind of founder origin stories. I mean, truly remarkable. If you look where Athletico's at today, I mean, how many, how many total clinics are there neighborhood locations across the country now? 900, over a thousand Plus, yeah, or, we're pushing thousand now. We're nine hundred plus. Yeah, which so. is which is amazing. It all started with the with the one. That's a little bit of foreshadowing of where where you were able to take it under under your watch over the course of uh, 30, 30 some odd years. What take us back to that first year as a small business owner? What were the feelings? Was it did it come out of the gate gangbusters? Were I mean, or was it did it feel like a, a good fit? What was what did you learn? What were you scared about? What were the feelings? Uh, how did that first year go as a, as a, as a startup business owner? He, uh, yeah, it, I'd love all, to have all a, of the above. <laughs> yeah. I would love to have a video of me on that first day. My dad was with me. We set up the clinic. It was a Saturday. We opened on a Saturday and I saw a few patients too, were professional athletes, actually a couple of NBA guys that stayed with me. But I remember that day, uh, easily. And, um, you know, the things that scared me were, the, you know, the financial side and the, the lack of business knowledge and like, you know, I, you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing, but not really. You, you I signed a 10 year lease because real estate at that time was at, at a very difficult. They weren't going to take mm -hmm. it was a tough commercial market and they weren't in the mood for a lot of new startup businesses with no track records or no track <laughs> right. senior executives. So. Signed a 10-year lease. I tried to get a business loan, went to a few banks, even used an Iowa connection from a former basketball manager. It was John Lackey. was a great kid that couldn't help me <laughs> and uh, ended up borrowing, uh, borrowing money from a college roommate of mine from Iowa who's still a close friend, worked with us a lot of years. Um, Beg, steal, and borrow. From, yeah, get it. Yeah. Borrowed from my parents, borrowed from my in-laws who were very gracious to support me. And, you know, you could say I felt the pressure of that, but, you know, it's the adage that failure wasn't an option. I wasn't going to be outworked. I got there at six in the morning at the latest, probably worked till eight at night every day, worked Saturdays all day, covering events Sundays when there was something to cover. It was easier time. My wife was working as a pharmaceutical rep. We didn't have children. And uh, I just devoted my time. We didn't take vacations and just got after it. And 
I saw the relate, you know, back to the athletic training side, I was so used to working with team physicians that it was just natural for me to connect to doctors. If you came in and you had a bad shoulder or an ankle, I'm going to find the right, right. I didn't know them, all of them in Chicago, but I was going to find the right doctors and I'd match, you know, it seems simple, but you match the right patient with the right doctor who's got a bedside manner, who's mm-hmm. a high quality physician, covered by the insurance so you don't create any administrative issues. And all of a sudden, patients and word of mouth and everything kicked in. And then the- You're referring to them and you're getting the referrals back. And- right. And then the physicians are sending those people and then they're saying, I, I remember doctors calling me and kind of the question was, who are you and where are you getting these patients? And I was just out covering- like I said, rugby, high schools, anything. And I'd, um, something physical therapists don't have as well as at least they didn't used to. Um, the athletic trainers had is more of the recognition through the evaluation of athletic injuries. PTs mm-hmm. generally get them after they've received treatment or care. Sure. And so I, I'd assess the injury and get it to the right doctor and do it, you know, <laughs> and amazingly without the internet or cell phones back then and uh, see an injury on Saturday, have them in the office Monday morning, skip the ER room if they didn't need it. And they were very appreciative. And so that led to a lot of relationships that I still hold today. And uh, that's awesome. It was important for, you know, the network and uh, it, it, again, another business ad is relationships matter. And, uh, and it, as they do in all businesses. Absolutely. You got the, sounds like the flywheel, spinning in a relatively quick amount of time was that sort of the impetus of location number two was like holy cow like i I need i need a little more room here because i'm getting more patience and more more demand and you know where did the the seeds of of growth start i mean was that i think i think it's one thing to kind of learn as an entrepreneur or business owner and start one business under one roof but then to be like okay now i want to do two three four five of these um talk a bit about your, your strategy around growth and, and where all that started. I wish I could, you know, pull out my strategy from 1991, but honestly, the first goal was just to keep that first center open. Survive. Yeah. yeah. I, we opened the second one in 94 and it was based on a person I knew. Um, and it taught me a lot about partnerships because I brought, you know, my model or our model early on, you know, I, I felt the reason, one of the reasons I started Athletico is uh, I thought there was a quick ceiling, you know, where I was in my first job. And so I didn't see myself really moving up and I have the audacity to open my own center seems at 26, you know, two years into my career seems a little crazy now, but that's how it worked. But I saw good people and good women and men, physical therapists or athletic trainers that I, that you know, they had talent and I was going to ask a lot of them to open a center and be there and be there like Mark Hoffman was there morning and night, making sure the lights are on at the right time, making sure they're off at the right time, making sure the service is a high level. Why shouldn't they be partners? So we had an equity model where they'd be minority equity, mm-hmm. um, not a size, but equi- actual equity holders in the business. They would be running their operation. We had work to do to bring the culture together. And when we scaled it to more than, you know, a dozen sites, you didn't want a different culture, you know, where you'd walk in and feel something completely different from one site to the next. So we had a lot of work and we did a lot of work around that. But, um, you know, that model works really well. If you find the right people, you support them, you uh, communicate, collaborate with them. And uh, they care about what's being delivered in their center. They take a lot of pride in it. 
and they also, you know, receive the return on their investment, so to speak. So, yeah. Um, a quick run through of our growth, we did, we did the second center ninety four by two thousand. So nine years into the business, I think we had ten sites mm-hmm. by two thousand and five. We probably had thirty forty sites by two thousand and ten. We've had probably close to eighty ninety locations, mainly in Chicagoland. But now we were starting to branch over into Northwest Indiana, across the border in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Maybe we touched the Quad Cities by then. So maybe we were in Iowa. I would yeah, have yeah. to go back and. Um, Iowa, we always, then, as you uh, know, we, Iowa always gets all the cool stuff like a couple of years behind everybody yeah. else, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true in some ways, but uh, a lot of good comes out of Iowa. I got to tell you, if I could hire, there's a lot of, I will say it, a lot of Iowans sprinkled around Athletico for good reason and uh, contributed to us. Um, and a lot of people that went to Iowa. So uh, that part's all good. But anyway, that's kind of how we were. And then we, uh, as a group in 14, we did our first private equity deal. So we brought on a capital investor. We had about 100 some locations. Um, it was a group called Harvest Partners mm-hmm. out of York, uh, and they were a great partner. Um, we did our first real acquisition, which we could talk for a day on that, but imagine an organically grown company to 100 plus locations with around, we probably had 1,500 employees by 2014. And we acquired a, cl- a company which had clinics in Iowa called Accelerated. Mm-hmm. And at the time we acquired them, um, they had 247 locations and oh, 2,500. Wow. So they were more than twice the size of us. So, uh, and that being our first acquisition, um, I always say that took a few years off my life, but uh, it was a great experience. And we, we acquired a, a huge group of talented people through that acquisition. Yeah, but that's a that's an amazing story to kind of see that and graph that and the the the, the acquisition along the way and go in too many uh, NBA programs. I don't no, think. <laughs> probably how they'd tell you to do it. If I, <laughs> I having gone to business school, I, I would only assume. And did you talk a bit about your skill set as a leader and executive? How where did you, where was the biggest challenge for you to lead a a, a company of? 100 then, then 400 locations as opposed to the hands-on. Was that, a, was that a tough transition of being the guy in the business, working on someone's knee and doing those sort of things, and now you're, you're becoming this person that's managing a, a very successful large-scale organization? What was that uh, metamorphosis like for you as a leader? You know, it was, uh, there's, there's a lot there, but um, the, the main tenets of, of uh, conversation or an outline would probably be that that I, I struggled in a couple things. One, um, retracting myself from the business or from the hands-on care. Mm-hmm. I probably took too long for that. And I, I would always frame it like there's, it came to be a point where I wasn't good at anything. I was not being a good therapist. I wasn't being a good husband and father. I wasn't being a good uh, executive leader because I was running around with my head cut off. Mm-hmm. And so you know, that was, you know, roughly the years 2003 to 2006. And then I pulled out of the physical therapy and, and, and knowing that I, we had plenty of good therapists. It's just the fact that I love doing it and being in the trenches, so to speak. And that it does help with management, but I did that too long. But the uh, one thing that 
that I, and it was from a book, but it basically, one of the messages from this, it was one of those starting your own business books, but um, that I read a lot because I felt like I, I got to find some resources here for help. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, uh, it it basically said, find what you do and do it a lot or do what you do best all the time and, and find other people. I can't be a great real estate guy. I cannot be a finance guy. I cannot be a lawyer. I cannot be a risk assess, you know, a risk mm-hmm. manager, a, you know, that compliance person. So, but surround yourself with good folks. And some were contractors, you know, we hired out our accounting, we balanced, you know, that did that every quarter through an outside group until we brought in our own finance and accounting team. But um, I, I, I think I have some skills around, uh, I'll call it EQ of uh, uncovering good folks and uh, keep, you know, surrounding myself with smart, smarter people and keeping them in my life. I uh, had great mentors growing up. That was helpful for me to identify those. Sure. But also just uh, finding, uh, you know, pick the topic leaders uh, within the organization that we didn't make too many mistakes um, around the different departments as we grew the business. And uh, we had a lot of hardworking folks that wore a lot of hats mm-hmm. to get us through. time. so um, it, it worked out. But uh you know, I, I think from my skill set, I think I'm a pretty good on the relationship building side. I'm pretty good on the collaboration and communication and cultural build side. Uh, it's what I enjoy. So it's probably my sweet spot. I enjoy operations and just trying to make the centers run better and make the keep the service level at the highest we can. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, another business message, but, you know, you treat people well and you treat your customers well and things can kind of work out. Right. What have you seen to be the biggest changes uh, physical therapy or the outpatient physical therapy, not only in the last, let's say the last 20 years, what have been the biggest changes to that business model? Then if you look forward another 20 years out, how will the business of Athletico have changed and, and how do you guys need to innovate to keep up with that change? There's, there's a lot of interesting and cool things happening um, and good things happening for the industry of physical therapy and thing, you know, when COVID brought along, some of them are fast track them, things like virtual care and, you know, online things. Yep. And we're working on some things around remote therapeutic monitoring, which is a new where we can monitor part of your rehab, you know, not being present with the patient one-on-one. So those things are interesting. The data backed, you know, the evidence-based practice where it, it was, it, and I still think it is, you know, medicine, rehab, physical therapy, is, athletic training is part part science and part art. Mm-hmm. I think it's became become, for the right reasons, more science-based, and, and that's good for our therapists, and it's good for the patients. And uh, there's some that think there's some things starting. I've been part of a couple, uh, you'll call them uh, Uber PT-like businesses, where We'll come to your studio where you are now and do physical therapy with you. But then there's also, and I'm a believer huh. in it, and call me an old war horse, but the old bricks and mortar physical therapy locations, I, I believe, will always have a place in the future because um, you may not want to be in your home with your kids running around and, and uh, your wife and you having the things you need to sort out together, you may want to go to an outpatient physical therapy center, dedicate an hour of your time to help yourself along without those distractions. Yep. And so I think, the, again, the bricks and mortar will always be there. Can they be accentuated by these other avenues for care? I think that's yes is the answer. But uh, 
the uh, so that's kind of what I, I see physical sure. therapy. It's interesting. Part of, uh, part of the healthcare spectrum. I think the other thing good, and I'll give you one bad. Um, the other good one is that physical therapists are on more of the forefront of healthcare. We are not the well, you go see the doc, you go get an x-ray, you go get your knee scoped, you go get an injection, you get on a prescription, and then you go see the physical therapist. Mm-hmm. Now we have what's called direct access where we get our hands on the patients. And if we can't get you better or go in the right direction in a few visits, then you can start those other uh, avenues. Yep. So that's what I see is good about physical therapy. The downside is reimbursement. Our friends in Washington continue to cut. Uh, it starts with Medicare or CMS. Yep. And so <laughs> reimbursement being what it is, it hurts the business model and it ultimately hurts therapists coming out, things like salaries, benefits, things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we know, you'll, you'll find out soon enough with your children, it's costs more and more to go to college. Yep. And when they come out of four years of undergrad and two to three years of PT school and the salaries and benefits aren't, aren't ultimately going to support that, it's going to hurt the profession. So um, has my attention uh, been in the field 30 35 years this year <laughs> and thought of that this fall mark yeah. 35 years which is crazy but uh so there it is yeah i think that's interesting you hear that conversation pop up a little bit more i mean it makes to get into like a high-paying doctor specialty where you're going to school for eight nine ten years and you can justify the end another 20 30 years of a really high salary but like there's got to be a way for the federal government to that hurdle rate of number of years you got to spend getting certified in these various things. It doesn't match, like you said, the, the contract in the end. So there's got to be some uh, changes to regulation in order to get that back into equilibrium in some way, shape or form. Especially for conservative, non-invasive care that we provide yeah. that shows research-based benefit. So yeah, hundred um, percent. Let's, Real quick here, as we finish up, talk a bit about some fun stuff. So, you, as you said, you guys are on the front lines, literally the physical therapists, the athletic trainers. For listeners that are out there, uh, and including us old hack athletes, like, what are the most dangerous? Like, what's the stay the hell away from those sports or those activities? Like, what's what's showing the most people up in in your physical therapy rooms across the country? The uh, um, uh, not prepared for that, but uh, I get asked a few uh, more than uh, a few times about because they know I played football, or my buddies will say, "Would you let your kid play football?" And I, I, my answer is always, "I had three daughters that swam competitively, two in college and one could have, but they all were good swimmers." And um, the answer is, if they have passion around it, you know, and if they don't have passion around it, you know, yeah. then it's it's not good for anyone. And so, if the kid had passion for football provided we understand the risks associated with CTE and head trauma and potential risk of orthopedic injuries. I, I would not never give up the, you know, the, the teammates and the opportunities I had as I'm sure you wouldn't, but um, the sports that, you know, the ones that catch my attention are the ones that are, they have a combination of uh, the, uh, the uh, chronic injuries and the acute injuries, a sport like gymnastics, hmm. you know, where you blow out your knee and you can have low back pain just by doing backflips, you yep. know, a hundred times a day for the, you know, 20 years. Also has uh, the, na- the nagging stuff too, right? Yeah. The little, little things and stuff. And you get the risk of some really serious injuries and that, that, that can be with wrestling. That can be with football. That can be with, with, uh, uh soccer and, and other things. So if you look at the injury rate, uh, for men and women's sports, you know, soccer's up there, gymnastics is up there, men and women. Um, but, uh, 
again, I, 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 our, our oldest daughter found swimming like on the third try. I think gymnastics was one, which was an ultra ultimate failure and, and, uh, and became, uh, and still swimming today. And, and so I, it, finding something they love or have passion for or want to compete in, I think the gifts of sport or athletics outweigh the risks. Far, yeah. Weigh the risks. Yeah. But, uh, that's a those great, are the ones. That, that's a great point. Talk a bit about, uh, before we wrap up here, I know you're, you're certainly a huge Hawkeye fan, big supporter of the university. Like you said, your, your daughters have uh, come through the university, been a part of the sports programs, obviously a big fan. You know, you're a big supporter of Northwestern Wildcats. Talk a bit about your impression of that changing landscape, especially over the course of the last couple of years with the NIL money pouring in as uh, you know, transfer portals, all these new, new terms and acronyms that are popping up. Like what's, What's your take on the current state of college athletes and, uh, and where everything's at? Well, I'm, I'm happily not a college coach right now, so I'm <laughs> glad with my career decision. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I worry. I, you know, I'm going to find a reason. It's my nature to worry about things or go, you know, find the, what's going to go wrong before I can appreciate what's going to go right. That's just the way I'm wired. But I think the NCA laid an egg in that they didn't really get their arms around this and kind of deflected and, and they could have taken some action to better assess, plan, strategize and, and come up with some options that, you know, could be. I think this is going to get a little goofy, but I think uh, I worry the, the risks of sport. I believe, you know, there's opportunity. Athletes should have opportunity to, to uh, for the NIL stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. I think they, there should be opportunities for them to move along if, if uh, the situation they chose as a fr- incoming freshman doesn't work out. But I also think there's not enough gu- guideposts around that with the portal and some mm-hmm. things that are happening now. Because if you're a coach, I mean, can you imagine coaching a kid? You know, in, a, in a, some of the way. Gone some to, of the coaches gone tomorrow. Yeah, you don't know how do you develop and. And pull the team together, and the next day the kid says, "No, I didn't like the way I was coached yesterday, and I want out." Yeah. So that scares me because I love college sports. I, I still appreciate professional sports and athletics in general, but in general, but I, I have a real love for college sports. So I worry about where it's going. I think it's going to require some really thoughtful people and thoughtful leaders. I see hopes of that with some of the folks. I read a lot about it, um, still today, and I think there's people that are, are and and the the people that are left behind are the ones that can't communicate well, can't collaborate, can't relationship build, can't team build mm-hmm. and, and strategize. And if they're not visionary leaders in this environment, uh, their particular program or departments in trouble. The thing that is really interesting to me, and this is a quick riff. I, I think there's an opportunity. Let's just call them the, the revenue sports like college football and, and men's basketball. And there's revenue sports, maybe women's basketball at Iowa or wrestling at Iowa, little pockets or different sports can create a positive uh, number at their, their P&Ls at the end of each year. But I think what could happen or should happen is that amateur athletics, meaning the USOC and all the national governing bodies, because the NCAA is still a feeder program for those yep. our country and other countries, that they should come together and create some type of environment where the revenue sports like men's basketball and football that generate these huge contracts and huge things help support, help help the budgets out of these Olympic sports, we'll call them, 
still fund their operations, receive support from the university, but also receive uh, support from national governing bodies and the United States, you know, U.S. government. And so that yep. there's money coming in because these athletes, you know, to take pride in what happens and comes out of athletics every four years with the Olympics and not do it, you know, it's a shameful job if you dig into the numbers of these, some of these, whatever you want to call it, bobsledders or mm-hmm. ears or, you know, distance runners or rugby players make as an Olympic sport. And I think there's a real opportunity to do something. The problem is, you know, it's a, coming from Chicago where the, uh, the, the city motto for the city of Chicago is where's mine. That's a joke. <laughs> but uh, all these national governing bodies, the USOC, the government, God help us, or the universities, they all have one piece of the pie. And they all have administrative structures that don't come together. And so if you don't have somebody pulling these things together where you're not being redundant in your expense side of the ledger, you're not going to have enough to really support what I believe should happen with college sports. So yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And obviously all those sports are worthy of uh, preserving and supporting, and it's going to take um, a little bit of innovation to kind of get back to, to doing that with all the money that's flowing in for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it'd be, a, it'd be a shame to not, not find a way to support all those and, and provide a platform for them to flourish as well. But that's the money great. is there for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Mark, thank you so much. This has been great. We like to wrap all these interviews up with just a, a quick question about how you define success. If you could, if you could define it in in one sentence, how would you do it? That's um, <laughs> one sentence will be hard. You know, I think if if you looked at if I looked at myself and said, "Have you been successful?" and and you know, with my whatever, my, getting myself educated having a career, having a family, having three beautiful daughters and a great wife, you know, by all means, that would be successful. But if I asked myself, if I died today, would I be happy with that? The answer is no, because there's just so much more to do, so much more to get involved with, so many, call it whatever, uh, philanthropic groups, universities like Iowa, Northwestern, things that I want to do, see my grandkids maybe touch their impact or impact their lives or lives of other organizations. So, I think the more you can touch others and mentor others and support others, that comes back a hundredfold. And by those terms, I, I, I've i been modestly successful so so far, but I have a lot more I want to do. <laughs> saying, saying your success is modest is definitely being modest. But uh, Mark, thank you so <laughs> much uh, for taking the time. This is awesome. It's been fun to watch um, Atletico grow and spread across the, the Midwest and into Iowa here. And uh, it'll be Great to watch uh, that world kind of morph and change as, as all the delivery methods and so forth change along the way. But look forward to seeing you soon back here in Iowa and uh, enjoy the rest of the your time down there in Arizona through the, through the rest of the winter. Thanks, Nate. It's been, uh, for whatever reasons, our paths crossed. And I, I consider myself blessed to get to know you and look forward to uh, doing more of that in the future. So thanks for the time today. Yep, you bet. Absolutely. My thanks to Mark Kaufman for coming onto the show to talk about his real success. Learn more about Athletico Physical Therapy by visiting athletico.com. And I'd also like to thank Midwest One Bank for sponsoring this podcast. Learn more and experience simply better banking at midwestone.bank. This podcast is produced by Upload Media Group, located in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. For more information on them, you can visit uploadmediagroup.com. 
If you enjoy this show, consider subscribing and reviewing on your podcast platform of choice. It helps us to continue to develop and grow. Real Success with Nate Kading is a Corridor Media Group podcast. For more information, visit corridorbusiness.com. Thank you.